Several years ago, my wife Pamela and her friend Marianne, Marianne's a, a violinist, and uh, those who have been around the church for a while, my, my wife is a vocalist, and they were invited to a New Year's Eve festival of singing and praise, and there were several churches there, and there was a, a beautiful, I mean, it was like busloads from um, Missionary Baptist Church, and it was just, you know, just awesome to hear them rehearse and so forth. And it was supposed to be an individual kind of thing. And the, the choir director uh, from the African-American church invited Pamela and Marianne to be a part of their choir. And I, I was running up and down the road, and so I, I picked the girls up, and then they were talking, and they were sort of, you know, kind of giggling to themselves in just, you know, you know, what they were experiencing. I'm like, okay, so what did you experience? They said, well, we're, we're, we're a part of this big, big song. I mean, it's the big, it's like the right before midnight song. And I said, oh, okay. And she, they said, oh my gosh, it is, it's powerful. But they, what they were giggling at is that as they were rehearsing and as they were getting into the song, the choir director gave them this sheet of paper. And in this sheet of paper, the lyrics were there. And it started out with Jesus and then it was Jesus, Jesus. Then it was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Then it was Jesus, 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 Jesus. And it went up to 20 Jesuses. And I was thinking, what in the world? You know, you know Jesus, 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 Jesus. And, and you just, you're like, okay, I mean, he's got a beautiful name, but my goodness, this is a little much until you experienced it. And in only the way that our brothers and sisters in the African-American church can do it, with the two little white girls in it, they blew the house apart. Hammond, Oregon. You know, you're just going, oh my goodness. The name of Jesus. 20 Jesuses. And the two little white girls were worried that they were going to miscount. I said, just hang on. They'll stop eventually. You know, Jesus, 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 Jesus. You know, you'll, you'll, it'll eventually stop. You're not under a microphone. And that's exactly where, where our hearts can, can get to where we are so overwhelmed with the power of what, what Christ has done in us. Uh, the sunrise service, I, I asked a question, you know, what, what, is the, what does the resurrection, resurrection mean in you? Oh, I know the two and the four, but what does it mean in you? When that connection with what your life has presented and you experience Jesus... As Jimmy said, when we experience the living Jesus, it changes things. And what changed things ultimately was the resurrection. And the resurrection allows us to know that there is tremendous hope, even in a broken world. There's tremendous hope, even in broken lives. Even those of us that have lived in the faith and we've come a long way. I also ask in that early service, you know, how many have like 40 years of Easter's? And they raise their hands. There's a bunch of them. I thought, like, oh, this is the old crowd. I said, okay, how many, you know, 50, 60? And one gentleman I, I put on the spot because I knew him, I said, so I said, Bud, how many Easter's you got? When did you come to Christ? He said, 1940. You see, the name of Jesus means something, and, and the resurrection hope that we have um, not is something that we just celebrate, obviously, on 
Resurrection Sunday, it is that what is, that allows us to, to just be who we are, to allows us to mature where we're at and, and, and the longing of where we want to be and how he's continuing to take us in a direction. That stagnation is only our choice. The Spirit of God is constantly moving us and constantly patient and constantly forgiving. You know, we've looked at Jesus' man myth, Messiah, the story of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is now in this part where Jimmy read. He is a part of this legal team. He's a part of the teachers of the law. They had gotten the job done. Now we know that that Nicodemus, through the scripture, became a sympathizer, right? Maybe that's what his peers would have called him. He was a sympathizer to the, to the fact that, that, that Jesus was something more. We studied two weeks ago the, the time where Nicodemus came to Jesus and, and he had questions to ask and he came in the evening and he came in what we understand is like a secret time. And whether he came to be the teacher of Israel to make sure that the rabbi was doctrinally sound, to understand why crowds were following him, or maybe to just find out for himself. And I think we walked away from that knowing that he was easily befuddled, but yet the new teaching from the rabbi, in only the way that Jesus could teach it, had the man questioning, and he walked away questioning, born again. What would that mean? Then last week we see in John chapter 7 that Nicodemus, the sympathizer, if you will, was now talking to his peers saying, well, maybe we should give him a hearing. Our law doesn't permit that. As a matter of fact, it encourages us. And so we see the, the heart of Nicodemus and this name above every name, Jesus, this relationship now with all of its, its controversy, with all of its understanding that he's obviously a man. But what now is this mythology? What is this that's going on around him? He's healing people, but he's teaching possibly errant doctrines. All of these kind of things. They knew that crowds would follow any message that would either feed them, heal them, or promise them something better than Rome. They knew that. I don't necessarily indict the teacher's and the, and the legal team, the, the, the Sanhedrin, for what they do, that was part of their job. But it became personal. And the name of Jesus started to be, be just, just, ugh. Now, I don't know if you've ever had one of those names that would just come to you and you're just like, ugh. <sighs> Maybe a person at work. Maybe someone you're sitting next to, don't point. But the name of Jesus had become distasteful. It became something that we now would plot against. Jimmy read from that beautiful passage where now Jesus is no longer in the grave. And they discover this. It's not in the text by his name, but it's, he's not named in the text, but we assume that Nicodemus now is thrust into this continued dilemma. Is he going to make him the Messiah? Is he going to understand him as the Messiah? He helped Joseph of Arimathea put the body into a borrowed tomb. We sang about that today. Three days in a borrowed tomb. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were teachers. They were leaders. They would be considered sympathizers. 
And yet, while he is being uh, taken off the cross, I wonder how many of his peers, this is all absent from Scripture, but it's, it's those, questions, those questions that allow you to get a bigger picture. You know, when did they discover that, uh, that the veil, the curtain in the Holy of Holies that separated God from man, when did they discover that? That it was torn from top to bottom. Something that would not have been vandalized. That this was not something that man could have done. This was all done by, by God. You see, when Jesus was on the cross and he was, he was dying, it says, that, it says that it became dark as night. And the storm came in. And at the point where he says, it is finished. When he says that, that, that all of the universal plan, before time, before time began for, for us, it says that a part of the plan is that Christ would be crucified. The Messiah would be burdened with the wrath that only we deserved. You see, the Godhead knew about that from the beginning, before we were even thought of, before we were even there, they knew that we would have a tendency to fall. And so we get that picture with the Adam and Eve story of knowing that, that we just have a bent towards falling away from things. And at that point, when the wrath that we deserved, that humanity deserved, played out the grand drama, the grand script of the God of the universe, the Father laid the burden on the Son and all of the wrath for all of the things that everyone deserved. He said it was finished. At that point, the Gospels teach us That something dramatic happened in the temple. <coughs> Allergy season. <coughs> I'm on all my meds too. It's crazy. <coughs> that that which separated God from us was now opened by God and that God was now for everyone still holy still all powerful still creator still sustainer but through the redemption of the son God was now available to all if they believe on the one who took the price. You see, each of us were born with a purpose and on purpose. But we also were born with a price that God knew would need to be paid. You see, whether you know Christ personally <coughs> or you're a hardworking Christian, we can end up believing a lie that says, if I just do a little more, if I just do a little more, if I just do a little bit more, if I'm just a little bit better. Some of you that don't buy into religion or buy into Christianity or see it as naive, I get it. It seems like we're always constantly trying to be like the other world religions where we're just trying to please a God. And it just seems like it's never enough. And we go from church to church or we try a church for a little while and it just doesn't seem to satisfy. 
I'm going to suggest to you one that maybe you need to embrace the sun over anything else. And those of us that are in the sun, we buy into truly the hope that the resurrection brings. I'd like to go over just, just very briefly on this beautiful Sunday morning what hope comes from the resurrection. The first thing, the resurrection means that we are justified. Paul says in Romans, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It's pretty incredible to think and imagine that, that Jesus died for us personally. It seems so far away, 2,000 years ago in the story, and can we trust the Bible and can we trust Scripture and all of that, but to know that that God the Father had a plan, that there is nothing more that we could do. There's nothing even more that we can do to please him in, in the finality of justification. We can't bring forth a justification. It's all on Christ. And because of the work of Jesus and his death on a cross, it means we live within the tension of going, there's nothing more I can do? There's nothing more? No. You see, we're the world religion that believes that the God of the universe took on the punishment of what wrath and brokenness in this world deserves. Have you ever thought somebody deserved wrath? Did you, has your heart ever gotten that murderous? Have you ever thought it's this man's inhumanity to man has got to just stop? I mean, we need some peace around this place. It's amazing how we're sort of a global, you know, neighborhood now with technology but it just seems like we just can't get along and it, you know geopolitical whatever it is right we just go and I think we sort of numb ourselves and we we just begin to kind of create our own little hope and we create our own little Disneyland that that you know we just kind of live in our own little bubble and and Christ would say no 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 the death on a cross meant something for the entire world it meant something that there is a surety and a knowing that what happened on the cross was final. The price was paid for all humanity. No matter what set of eyes we look at, they do not and you do not have to live eternity Christless. It's a matter of knowing that we are truly justified apart from what we could ever do. In Jesus it was done. By his resurrection, all believers in Jesus are justified. Justification is a word that, that means to put to be put right with. You see, if you never thought you could ever be right with God, you may be in the camp and really in your heart of hearts you still debate. Maybe it's even something of the evil one to where you just don't think you can land. You just, you just haven't landed in your faith. It's not that you don't have questions, but it's just like, no, this is where on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, we remind ourselves that there is power and that there is everything in the name of Jesus. And that in that, we are justified. It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. The love of God, which we cannot be separated, loves us so deeply that he took on our guilt, our shame, the pleasure of our sin, and the sin that we feel so bad about. He justified us truly and purely. And there is nothing more than to receive what God has given us through the one who died on a cross. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, I have not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners to repent. For the one who was only righteous, the only one who ever walked fully righteous on this land, knew that even those that thought they were righteous were sinning in the thought. And he came for all. You see, for in the resurrection, secondly, it's defeated death. Paul says, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. <laughs> he is truly free. And that truth of freedom is for each of us. That death no longer has to concern us. It is something that frees us. And we are totally free. You see, I am still in a grief phase based on the death of my mom in late December. I know many of us are in that season of grief where death has just kind of put us in disequilibrium. That's because we loved and we spent time loving. Yet what Christ's death on a cross and his resurrection gives us is the, the complete hope that Paul talked about. It's the hope that is certainty, is surety. That absent from this body, that there is something more. That it's not just this life, and thank you very much, it's something that is much, much more. You see, Jesus rose from the dead because... The grave could not hold him. And so all that believe in him now carry that same response. Oh, now death, we have to die. Death is that final, scripture teaches us that death is that final punishment. It's that, that, final, that, that final passageway of, of getting to the place of all eternity. But death has been conquered. Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, that death has no mastery over him and has no mastery over us. You see, the resurrection gives us that hope. It also means that we have union with Christ, union with Jesus today. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Live with him. God's love is higher and wider and deeper than we can ever imagine. It is something that we, by faith, receive this level of righteousness. We receive the righteousness of Christ. Not only are we justified, but then his placement at the right hand of the Father allows him to then be the surety of our righteousness. Now, there's plenty of scriptures in, that teach us that we must engage. We must be pure. We must be holy. We must be righteous do these things, right? All of these things are, are not the doing of justification. It's, it's the being of justified. And in that being justified, that gives us a confidence and a hope that, that causes us to truly live righteously. Paul says that we no longer sin. It's because we're in a positional place with Christ that when that day of judgment comes, that time in the future when we give an account, Jesus stands before us and says, Father, they are mine. They are ours. You see, if you don't know Christ, that's why Christ is going to ask you a question at the end of the message. It's a question of what are you going to do with him? Is he a man? 
Is it just mythology? Or is he truly Messiah? Is what he said he was going to do and did, is it enough for you to give him a hearing? For those of us that are in Christ, we get to walk and be in union with him. Now as new creations, Paul told Timothy, now as new creations in Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can walk in the way of love. His grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Can you imagine? Jimmy kind of prefaced in the service this level of resurrection engagement. You see, we can come here and we can celebrate what resurrection means for us or what it was to us. But when we do personalize it, when we do allow the resurrection and the power of what Christ's name means to us and, and really is, is us, then that's the right question. That's the right place to, to love. You see, resurrected people love irrationally like Jesus. They approach people irrationally like Jesus. They take on people's stories irrationally like Jesus. Is there no truth to bring them to? No, I'm not saying that. Jesus always brought levels of truth. He was the way and is the way. He was the truth and brought truth. And he also brought life and that's what changed people. You see, he desires for us to receive his righteousness and to allow him to work through his spirit so that we might be called the righteousness of God within the camp and those outside the camp. Because the resurrection also gives a living hope. The apostle Peter, the big fisherman, the one that Jesus made breakfast for in the post-resurrection appearances, says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We Christ fathers have great hope. It's not a false hope. It's not just well wishes. Rather, it's a trustworthy hope based on faith. We've been justified before God. We are no longer enemies headed to an eternal separation. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, there is a decision that, that he makes with us. And he desires for us to make the decision to die to self. The resurrection in me means that I die to myself most every day. There's a challenge, there's, there's a tension, there's something within me in my personal testimony that says, Tom, it's a little bit too much you. You die to that and, and give it over and let the resurrection power work within you and through you. And you watch, you not only you change, but the people around you. See, each of us have that testimony. We love Jesus. We're trying to do our very best. And what the Apostle Paul and what Jesus and what the Scripture would teach us is to remember our position raised in him. We put aside those things in the waters of baptism. We were forgiven of our sin and we received 
The indwelling presence of his spirit means that we don't walk alone. It means that we can live the righteous life. It's not that Jesus just set it up, leaves, and says, good luck. No, he says, no, I give you a comforter, a teacher. And so we live spirit-filled lives, meaning we are driven by the spirit. We listen to his nudgings. We listen to his promptings. We grow and mature through his word. And with that, we see the name of Jesus going before us, as opposed to even our own name. You see, the resurrected life means that we are not our own. We were bought with a price, and now we engage in the world that needs to know, that needs to know that there is forgiveness, to needs to know that, that they don't have to live in this life alone, that they can receive God, there can be a friend to Jesus. You see, that is tremendous hope. Tremendous. And then lastly, we see that we will be raised too. The resurrection gives us that great guarantee of, of future glory. In our house right now, we're in full-blown wedding mode. My oldest daughter is getting married. For those of you who have, have experienced it before, just pray me through, okay? The rest of you know that wedding means wallet empty, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's all it means. And no, it means more than that. But it's, it's been interesting. The kids are going to end up staying with us because why try to spend money on apartments and so forth and we can, we can get along and so that, that always works. And I'm still thinking about the son-in-law being just down the hall, but that's a whole different deal. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, we better not go there. So, <clears throat> the... But to watch Caroline, to watch Caroline get the room ready. It was her room. Now it's going to be theirs. No, I'm, I'm teasing. And she, she got the bigger bed. And they're just, she's just, she's preparing this single room for a we now. And every time, I kid you not, every time they, they bring home a new lamp or they do this or they do that, I, I constantly, it just overwhelms my soul lately. To think of the wedding to come. You see, these grown men, these, these, these disciples, they, they followed him for three years, and, and he was telling them of, of God's great plan and that he was going to have to die. And then there's this beautiful passage that just humbles, humbles me as a man, but it also allows me to relate to those men that, that were right there with him, who weren't always absorbing what he was teaching and weren't really getting it. As a matter of fact, I think Scripture's pretty clear that their aha came after the resurrection. And there's this one scene where Jesus is, again, telling them about where he's going to go and so forth. And they were just troubled. They were frightened. They, they, they did not want to hear that he had to die and that he was leaving them. And Jesus says these words. He says, don't be afraid. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't tell you. And it's this beautiful picture. Jesus was giving us this beautiful picture of the, the Jewish heritage of, of what the bridegroom would do. 
And the bridegroom would take significant amount of time to prepare a room for he and his bride. And they would, it may be a part of the family home or a part of the family property, but it was a big deal for the, for the bridegroom to prepare this place so that when the wedding happened, they would have a place for the forever commitment of that covenant. You see, Jesus, through his resurrection, gives us all the, all the means to understand that there is a wedding to come. He calls male and female, all of us within the body of the church, he calls us his bride. And he guarantees that there is a day he's preparing the place. He's preparing the room just down the hall so that we might know that there is an eternity with him to come. And that our bodies, that this sin life, that this struggle, that this brokenness, whether we've experienced it or we've created it, whether all of the sin, everything's going to make perfect sense because there is a day when we too will be glorified. That death is, does not just end. Well, he's a good guy, it's done. No, the Christian worldview believes that that there is something more and that our life matters today and that your struggle matters today and that your redemption and your justification matters today and that his glory matters today and that through his glory and his powerful resurrection, there is not just hope against hope, that there is a guaranteed hope that says there is something more and we can long for it just like a bride and a groom long for a wedding. And although he's waiting, and we're waiting also, we're in the Saturday between Friday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning. We're in that waiting period. And he desires for our hearts to just continue to long. Don't grow stagnant. Don't grow stale. Continue to be the righteous bride that you are. Don't prostitute yourself. Don't get yourself into a mess. Keep your lampstands lit. Allow yourself to know that what you are experiencing is real and true and honest. And you keep steadfast knowing that you're justified and you're forgiven. And you're indwelled with the Spirit. And you're going to make it. And we're going to make it. And there will be a day when the wedding of all weddings happens. And we will enjoy the resurrected life like it was meant to be. Paul says to the church at Corinth, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown perishable is going to be raised imperishable. The body that's sown in dishonor is going to be raised in glory. That which is sown in weakness is going to be raised in power that which is sown in the natural body is going to be raised in a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, Paul says, there is also a spiritual body to come. And so with all the suffering and the pain and the illness and these, these old tents just getting older and older by the day, there is tremendous hope. Why? Because Jesus says it, himself he raises Lazarus from the dead Lazarus was not in the glorified state he was just raised from the dead 
I sometimes think, well, he had to die twice, but he raises Lazarus from the dead. It was a miracle. He had been dead for four days. This is a good friend of Jesus. Sisters Mary and Martha, if you're familiar with those names. And Jesus says these profound words. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's speaking of that translation of death into supernatural life. And that's what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And if you have yet come to Christ or you've yet to investigate him further, he asks a question. This is Jesus asking his disciples and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' family this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? You see, those that believe truly celebrate. And those who have yet to believe are just on the edge. Friend, you are just on the edge of a celebration like you've never experienced before. Friend, you are spiritually dead and he desires for you to come to spiritual life. We'll be in the back after the service, in the, in the lobby, whatever the case may be. If that's a conversation you'd like to have, let me just invite you to interrupt. You're not interrupting anybody, especially on Easter Sunday. Maybe this would be the day that you could, would want to come to Christ and experience the new birth as Nicodemus investigated and have the guarantee that each of us have on this most cultural day, but every day that the resurrection truly brings us hope. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the reminders. We are so delighted in the fact that we serve a risen Savior, not someone of something we make up or some level of mythology, some level of psychobabble, whatever it is, Lord, we are so glad that we serve the name above every name. Father, we thank you for this time that we can remind ourselves of what it means to live in and for and to and through the resurrection. God, I pray for each of us that we would stop our doing and absorb into the being of resurrection power. And for those who have yet to receive you, Father, I pray that in the quietness of their own heart that they may be lifting up a prayer to you to forgive their sin, to receive them exactly the way they are and reach out to you for what it means to experience eternal life. God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus, our resurrection and life. Amen. So, um, as Thomas said, Jesus Christ really is the celebration. So, as we are celebrating the resurrection time of communion, I want to celebrate with you guys. Um, so, let's all stand and sing this song.
is the